whatever reason, uh, we kind of associated Easter with the sound of music, the, the musical. Uh, I know now when they when they play the sound of music on television, they play it around Christmas time. It's sort of become a Christmas movie. But when I was growing up, and this this dates me a little bit because this is uh, you, you couldn't own the movie. Nobody nobody had VHS tapes or DVDs of the movie. So the only way that you could watch the sound of music was when it came on network TV. And back then they used to play it in February and March. So it was a springtime tradition in our family. And I mean it was a tradition in our family. When it came on, the three-hour television showing, we were all gathered around the TV watching it every, every year. It was one of my parents' favorites. They raised us to love musical theater. I've passed this tradition along to my children. And The Sound of Music is still one of my favorites. And between watching it every year, and my mom had the original... Uh, recording, the, the album, record album, big black thing for you kids, uh, had, had the album and I would listen to all of that and because of this annual viewing and listening to that album, I actually knew all the songs in Sound of Music by heart well into my teenage years and yes, I was a huge nerd in high school, thank you for asking, but that that was a, a tradition in my family, not only because the music in The Sound of Music is very catchy, you know a lot of the tunes, uh, but also because it has a great storyline. It's not a lot of musicals that can incorporate a storyline about running away from Nazis. That's, that's pretty creative. They did a good job with that. It's a great story. And I think about that not only because I used to watch it around the, the early spring, but also because it sort of reminds me of what Easter means on, on Easter Sunday morning at church. Because Easter Sunday services follow the same, the same simple formula as musical theater. And that is this. It is a great story that inspires great worship, great music. Now, I know uh, for those of us who love musical theater, this all makes perfect sense. Let's face it. We all either love or hate musicals based on the same thing, which is that people randomly break out into song. And, and people that hate musicals will tell you, the reason I hate musicals is because that doesn't happen in real life. People don't just have a conversation and then suddenly burst out singing with full orchestration behind them. And people who love musicals will tell you that should happen. That is the way life should be. There should be a soundtrack and, and we should, every time we get emotional about anything, we should just break out into a song number about it. But here's the thing, folks. If ever there was a story that justified our breaking out in song, it is the story we recount this morning. Great stories have depth, they have character, and they have significance. And the gospel story has rightly been called the greatest story ever told. 
One of the hallmarks of great stories is that they are complex. That the story will have a nice, simple plot that everyone can follow, but it has a depth that means every time we go through that plot, we can see something new. There's always something new to experience. And believe me, I have been preaching Easter sermons for many, many years, and I still encounter new things as I prepare for Easter Sunday. Today we are here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you're here, there is a very good chance that you already know the plot of the story. We pick it up in Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. This is how we introduce this whole section in the Gospel of Matthew. You, those of you who are here will recall from our previous study in Matthew that Jesus has been telling them this stuff for weeks. He's been telling them exactly what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be put on trial. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be put to death. And three days later, I'm going to rise up from the grave. He tells them the whole story in advance. There's no mystery here. But for some reason, everybody else in the story continues as if he hasn't told them any of this. So the chief priests and the elders, they're going to plot to arrest and kill Jesus. Judas will agree to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus will announce that he is about to be betrayed, and all of his disciples will question themselves. Surely not, not me. Peter will declare his loyalty right unto death. And Jesus will predict his denial. Jesus will go into the garden and pray and he'll say, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And three times he will return and find his disciples sleeping as he prays in agony. Jesus is arrested. He's tried before the Sanhedrin. False witnesses are brought up to accuse him of blasphemy. Peter denies him three times. Judas feels guilty and throws the money back at those who gave it to him, blood money now, and then he goes and hangs himself. Jesus is dragged before Pilate. He's found innocent. He is condemned to death anyway. He is stripped, whipped, beaten, spit upon, mocked in a crimson robe and a, and a crown of thorns. He's nailed to the cross to die in shame. He yields up his life, and the sky turns dark, and the veil of the temple is torn in two, and the ground shakes. But we're here this morning because we all know that this is not the end of the story. As he said he would, three days later, he returns. He is resurrected. He comes back from the dead, back from the grave. In his resurrection, Jesus defeated sin and death. This is the part of the story that we know well. This is the part that we've been told, the part that we've been taught, the part we've been coached on. This is what we understand. 
that all of us are sinners, that our sin separates us from God, that the penalty of our sin is death, and that Jesus, by dying on the cross, is our perfect sacrifice. He paid the debt, and then he comes back to life. And if that were the whole story, if that's all there was to it, that, that would be enough. That would be worthy of our gathering this morning and celebrating. We have no right to expect that, much less anything more. But as is so often the case, the full story of the resurrection is more extravagant than we might have imagined. And it is more extravagant because the damage that's been done is more extensive than we often like to admit. We make this a story sometimes about our personal sin. We recognize that our personal sin needs a fix. But in doing that, we can reduce the death and resurrection of Jesus to a transaction that Jesus makes to square my debt with God. And what that does not take into account is that even if God forgives me, the damage of my sin still exists. The damage of the sin of others still exists. The damage of sin upon the whole world still exists. To understand the full cause for joy in the resurrection of Jesus, we really sort of have to plumb the depth the sorrow, and the brokenness of the world. Because it is the purpose of Jesus to redeem the fallen world. We should know, but sometimes don't know because we often live in denial. We should know, looking at the world around us, that this world just ain't right. For starters, we are all sinners, and sometimes not very repentant ones. Sometimes we're pretty self-justified sinners. Sometimes we look at ourselves and say, I think I'm doing pretty good. I'm pretty good in my own eyes. Sometimes we, we are self-justified and self-righteous. But even when we are repentant, we look at the world around us, we go looking for truth, and it is really hard to find. It, it is a rare commodity. And wherever it is, truth is wrapped in a burial shroud of lies and tucked away in the grave. We have to go digging to find it. Justice we talk about all the time, but the reality is that justice in the world around us is transient and unreliable. And when people are talking to us about justice, very often they mean justice for me and not for thee. Love. Oh, you can't go wrong with love, right? But how often is love misunderstood, misused, abused, manipulated, and broken? And have you noticed that whenever people get together to try to solve all of these problems in our broken, fallen world, Whenever we try to form a utopia, there are thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people 
who are oppressed, imprisoned, tortured, and killed in the name of goodness. In a fallen world, you see, suffering is normal. Anyone who has lived long enough already knows this. You have all known loss and you have known pain. You've been abandoned, you've been betrayed, you've been wounded. And the truth is, in our worst moments, we have inflicted loss and pain, and abandonment and betrayal. We have wounded people that we didn't intend to. We are so accustomed to all of this, we've actually become kind of good at it. Today in our culture, people actually compete over who's suffering the most. My suffering's worse than yours. Makes me a better person than you. And in the twisted reality of the fallen world, our wounds have become our status and our identity in the culture. And so is so inevitable is sin that our solution to sin has has turned from repentance to just sort of redefining evil as good and good as evil. And once we've accepted sin, then we insist on celebrating sin. But sin still has consequences. And the more we deny sin, the graver those consequences become. Because sin is not only an insult to God, it is an insult to the life that God has given us. Sin mocks the image of God upon us. And the greatest mockery is death. We're, we're rather fond of saying that death is just a natural part of life, but that's not quite true, is it? Not, not for creatures who have the image of God, the image of an eternal God upon them, Death is an insult. It is the ultimate insult, the ultimate mockery. Even if we manage to journey through this life without wounding one another, death mocks us, telling us that everything ends. We can live for love. No higher calling than that, right? But in the fallen world, love only leads to loss, mourning, and pain. And it is these hard things that are on Jesus' heart. In Matthew 26, starting with verse 36, And Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and two of the sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell to his face with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Folks, it is natural for us to resist misery. 
If Jesus can be resistant to misery, certainly we can. Life in the fallen world is full of misery. And even Jesus himself recoils at the thought of it. The plan, mind you, has always been the plan. Jesus was always going to be the sacrifice. He was always going to offer up his life. But it is more than death that's on the line as Jesus prays in the garden. He's not simply surrendering himself as lamb of sacrifice for his people. It is everything fallen about the world. It is pain, humiliation, indignity, betrayal, denial, loss, and mourning. Jesus not only comes into the world to surrender himself for the world, but he actually submits himself to all the brokenness of the world. And when he faces that misery, he is reluctant. But he says to his father, not my will, but yours, because he concludes that suffering is not the worst thing. We don't really like uncertainty in life. We don't like the fact that things can, can turn bad tomorrow and we won't know that it's coming. But there's a certain advantage to it. Because I understand that Jesus sees the whole landscape of the misery that he's about to face and still chooses to continue down the path. His soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. And of course it is, because no one in their right mind wants to take this journey. But Jesus says, not my will, but yours, because suffering is not the worst thing. Now we're inclined to do everything within our power to flee suffering, to do anything within our power to avoid suffering. We've even convinced ourselves sometimes that the Christian faith is about somehow skipping suffering, which is a little bit ironic seeing as how the, the, the leader of our faith chose to suffer on our behalf. The worst thing is not suffering. The worst thing is suffering without hope or purpose. Suffering that leads nowhere. Suffering that accomplishes nothing. It is the pursuit of love and life that ends only in loss. And no matter how well we play the misery game, no matter how effectively we ignore our fate or our sin, where death reigns, life and love are ultimately hopeless. And whatever suffering we must endure is meaningless. All of this changes because Jesus defeats sin and death. The sin and death that mocked our life and denied the image of God that has been written upon us. But the story is still yet more extravagant than that. Because in his final week, Jesus is failed by everything in the fallen world. Everything that we have ever been tempted 
to put our faith in, to rely upon. Everything that we thought maybe in our best day might add meaning to our existence. It all fails, Jesus. He is hated by those he came to save. He is misunderstood by those he taught the most. He is betrayed by a friend, abandoned by his followers. He is denied by a confidant. His character is blasphemed by religion. His fate is abdicated by the government. He goes to trial, but he receives no justice. He's crowned a king, but only by those who would mock and shame him. He is beaten without purpose. He is despised without guilt. He is crucified without sin. When it mattered most, faith collapsed. Love faltered. Family could not save. Jesus was sinless, but sin destroyed him. He was beautiful, but he was consumed by the ugliness. He was the word of God, but the truth was veiled in lies. And though he predicted all of it, though he told everyone who would listen exactly what was about to happen, arrest, trial, condemnation, death, and resurrection. Nobody believed him. In short, there is no suffering, no misery, no bitter indignity that you can know in this life that Jesus has not already tasted on your behalf. Matthew 28 says, After the Sabbath, at the dawn of the first of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you're here looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. You see, Jesus alone is victorious over every single failure. Our failure is comprehensive. The world's failure is comprehensive, but his victory is extravagant. It leaves nothing untouched. It restores purpose. It makes our suffering bearable and meaningful. It defeats death, and it unlocks the hope that was once lost to us. Jesus invites us to die. But he invites us to die to the fallen world 
so that we can be raised into new life. He invites us to die to everything that's broken, everything that has failed us, everything that will fail us, so that we can be raised up into a life where he will be faithful to us. No matter how well we've learned to play the game, it cannot be won outside of Jesus Christ. The world, with all of its broken promises, all of its lies, all of its decay, these are not our source. They are not our purpose. They are not our identity. We bury that life with Jesus in baptism. We rise to the hope of resurrection. And church, there has never, ever been a better reason to break out into song. Father, we are so grateful for what we are here to celebrate today. So thankful that you not only redeem us from sin, but you redeem us from a life without purpose, a life without meaning. That you restore to your creation a taste of what it means to be created in your image. We're thankful, Lord, to know that your son will return and finish this work, that his kingdom will be perfected, and that we will, with him, be called into resurrection life. We pray these things together in the name of the Son who saved us. Amen.